Our text this morning is going to be in John chapter 6. I've got to tell you, I'm, I'm here with, uh, with a heavy heart this morning. Um, I found out yesterday that I, I didn't know him well, I'd met him, but I found out yesterday that a pastor in Bluefield uh, by the name of Mike Baker, uh, Mike Baker was pastor at Bluefield Community Church, I found out yesterday that he committed suicide. So, he was behind a wife and three little children. Um, I don't have to tell you, uh, I spend most of my time uh, with either church planters or pastors. Um, And I don't have to tell you the burden that pastors carry. Um, And I know that this church loves your pastor. Kevin's Kevin's a dear friend. Um, But let him know. Let him know how much you love him. One of the ways that you've let him know how much you love him is by letting him and his family uh, take vacation. Um, there are many churches throughout our state that, for whatever reason, they don't think it's important for a pastor to take vacation. They think, well, all you do is work on Sunday. Out <laughs> on half a day Wednesday. Um, but you know better than that. You know better than that. Uh, so I appreciate the fact that you love your pastor, and I appreciate the fact that you allow him to and encourage him to have time away with his family to uh, refresh. Um, but please keep the Baker family in your prayers, and please keep that church in your prayers. Um, Bluefield Community Church, it's a, it's a small church. It's a very contemporary church. It's a Southern Baptist church. Um, not part of our association or part of our state convention. It's over on the Virginia side. Um, But you can just imagine. No, you can't imagine. I can't imagine what they're going through this morning. So we we need to pray for them. The Lord has promised that he will bind up the broken and that he, that he is the God of the brokenhearted. So that's what we have to pray for this morning. Let's, uh, before we, before we get to the text, let's, let's take some time to pray for this family. Father, I, I, I cannot imagine, I cannot begin to imagine what this family is going through right now. Father, what this wife and these three children are going through right now, Father, they're, it's just beyond words, it's beyond understanding. And Father, what this church is going through and will go through in the days and weeks to come, Father, is is heartbreaking. But Father, we know that just the little bit of heartbreak that we have over it is, is just nothing compared to the heartbreak that you have over it. Father, we know that this is not taking you aback. This is not taking you by surprise. And Father, we trust Your Word when it says that even things like this that are unimaginable, that we can't explain, that we can't even begin to fathom, even things like this, Father, You will use for good. So Father, that's the only thing that we have to lean on this morning. 
Father, we would ask that you would uh, bind up the broken hearts of this family, bind up the broken hearts of that church. Uh, Father, just provide the peace that passes all understanding. Father, if there would be a way that this church or that I or any of us could reach out to those, uh, Father, let those opportunities present themselves and may we be faithful to, uh, to respond in the way that you would have us to. Father, bless our pastors. Father, you have, uh, you have called men to carry the burden of people's souls. Father, what a burden that is. Father, I would ask that, that those pastors who are faithful to their calling and those pastors who are true to your word, that you would lift them up and that you would anoint them. And Father, that you would encourage them. Father, we pray for Pastor Kevin this morning. Father, while he's away, Father, may the, the time that he's away with his family, Father, may it be refreshing. Father, may he come back invigorated and come back uh, just full of your spirit and full of your, your word and your encouragement. And Father, thank you for this body that, that loves him so much. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. John chapter 6 is where we're going to be this morning. We'll, be in the, uh, we'll start in the first part of the first part of the book and we'll go through verse verse 13 it's a very familiar passage it's a very familiar passage and one thing that i'm going to ask you to do this morning sometimes when we when we come across very familiar passages that we you know if you've been in church more than uh, more than 15 minutes you've probably heard many of these stories and one thing that when we come across stories like this that are very very familiar to us that we might have had growing up in sunday school or we might have had like that one of the things that we can do is we can sit back and we can say, well, oh, I know that one. It's like when you watch a TV show more than once. <laughs> you say, oh, I know what's going to happen. And you kind of tune out. One thing that I'm going to ask that we would do this morning is, even though this is a very familiar passage, and the passage that we look at tonight is going to be a very familiar passage, one thing that I'd ask that you do is just kind of take a step back. Take a step back and look at it like you're reading it for the very first time. Have you ever seen a child when you tell them, when you get a brand new storybook and you tell them the story and they're just excited to get to the end and they're just full of wonder and amazement about what the story is and how it unfolds? That's what I want us to do this morning. Can we do that? Can we look at this with fresh eyes this morning? These things work up and down. Can we do that this morning? All right. If you found your place to John chapter 6, we're going to read the first 13 verses. And I would ask that you'd stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word. I'm going to be reading out of the Holman Christian Standard Bible. You uh, follow along in whatever translation that you have. <clears throat> After this, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee or Tiberias. And a huge crowd was following Him because they saw the signs that He was performing on the sick. So Jesus went up a mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, a Jewish festival, was near. Therefore, when Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd, he says it again, it's a huge crowd. you get the picture? 
noticed a huge crowd coming toward him. He asked Philip, where will we buy bread so these people can eat? Verse 6, he asked this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Verse 7, Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. Uh, But what are they for so many? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There's plenty of grass in that place, so they sat down. The men numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves. After giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also with the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were full, he told his disciples, collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they collected them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces from the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for your word. And Father, thank you that no matter how many times that we hear the stories in your word, Father, we know that there's so much more than stories. Father, we know that they are true accounts of what actually happened. And Father, as we look at this true account of what actually happened on that day, Father, may we see it with fresh eyes this morning. And Father, may we see it not just as a distant story, but Father, as a story of us, as a story of who we are and who Christ is to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Now, like I said, this is one of those the very familiar stories. It's a very familiar passage. You know after we read it, you, I'm sure if, like me, the first, uh, you know, when, when you read through it, the first thing that comes to your mind is, well, now I'm going to date myself, flannel graph. <laughs> now, anybody that's under my age, flannel graph, by the way, is probably, uh, it's like the PowerPoint of the late 70s. <laughs> flannel graph in Sunday school, you you would stick up the characters on the board in Sunday school classes and you'd have the pictures and the stories and all of those kinds of things. So it's a very familiar passage to us. But as as I said, we're going to look at this with fresh eyes this morning. The first verse that we read there, it starts with the words, after this. Now you might get the impression as you go through this that the after this is immediately after what happened in chapter 5. Well, one thing you have to know about the way that John wrote his gospel, the way that the Holy Spirit inspired John to write his gospel, was it wasn't necessarily an immediate chronological history like we would have. What you don't see is that there was a gap of about six months between chapter 5 and chapter 6. We can put that together with the telling of these same events in the other gospels. But during that gap of about six months between chapter 5 and chapter 6, it wasn't like Jesus was just sitting back at Capernaum just hanging out. No, Jesus was very busy. He was very busy going about through Galilee and performing all kinds of miracles. Everywhere that He went, He would heal people and He would, uh, he would cleanse them. And he was performing miracles everywhere he went. He was casting out demons. He was doing all kinds of amazing, incredible, incredible things. And because of that, you can just imagine what the crowds were doing. As he went and as word of him spread, the crowds around him just became huge. Can you imagine if somebody was in our midst this morning, it was in walking through the streets of Princeton, healing the sick and all. Can you imagine the crowds that would form? It'd be like Walmart on Nickel Day, wouldn't it? 
The crowds just, just swarmed around Jesus. They would pour in from everywhere. And they would do it all hours of the day and night. To the point that in order for Jesus to have alone time with His disciples, He would have to do it very intentionally. He would have to, to draw them away to quiet places. That was where He would invest time in them. And that's what's happening in the first three verses of our passage this morning. He intentionally takes His disciples out of that crowded scene and goes off to a place where it's quiet and where it's desolate. Jesus crossed over to the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. If you're familiar with the area at all, it is a very desolate place. It was a very desolate place in that day. It was very remote. Probably the only people that would go there would be fishermen occasionally, when they would occasionally dock their, their boats there and offload their, their catch of the day. He was looking for a way to get away with his, Jesus was looking for a way to get alone with his disciples, but even the crowds followed him even to that desolate place. So Jesus moved a little bit farther, moved a little bit farther from the shore up on top of a mountain, up on a mountainside there. But the people even followed him there because they wanted him. People will go a long way for something that they really want, won't they? People will work hard for it. People will chase after it. And when the people, when the crowds of people got to where Jesus was, they got a whole lot more than what they were expecting, didn't they? As we look at this event, I want us to notice the different characters that are involved. We're just going to look at the different characters as scenes in this story as we go. Verse 2 talks about the first character in our story. It's not really an individual, but that character is the group. It's the crowd. As I said when we were reading it, it identifies the group a couple of times as a huge crowd, as a massive crowd. Now, that's not an exaggeration by the Apostle John when he wrote this. He wasn't just using hyperbole when he said that. It was a huge crowd. Verse 10 says that there were 5,000 men there. It's significant that it says men because they weren't counting the women and the children that were there. So if you add the women and the children, you're looking at probably fifteen to 20,000 people. You're looking at about uh, one-third of the population of our county gathered in one place. Now, if you went to the 4th of July stuff over at Honeycutt Field the other day, it might have seemed like it was that many, or at least one was trying to leave. (laughs) But can you imagine 20,000 people gathered in one place there on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee? In other words, this was a massive crowd. This was a massive crowd, and it was getting late, and the people were getting hungry. It's not a good thing to have 20,000 people getting hungry, is it? Oh. Now, when we think about getting hungry, it's not really that big of a deal to most of us. When we get done here, it'll be lunchtime, and many of us will be thinking, "Eh, it's lunchtime, and I'm pretty hungry. Our hunger that we think of really doesn't hold a candle to what many of these people were feeling in that day. Now, some of us in here might know what it's like to be really hungry. I imagine that many people in this crowd knew what it was like to be really hungry. See, this area around the Sea of Galilee, around this this community where Jesus was, it wasn't a rich area of the country. Matter of fact, it was a pretty poor 
area of the country. So these people were looking for more than just a snack. It wasn't just that they had missed, you know, we're looking for a late night snack. No, many of these people were really hungry. Plus the fact that they'd been chasing Jesus all over the countryside. So when it says that they were hungry, they were really hungry. They were away from home. It was getting late and they were in desperate, not desperate, but they were in, in sufficient physical need. There's something all-consuming about being in physical need, isn't there? If we're hungry, or if we're in pain, or if we need bills paid, there's something that can be all-consuming about being in need, isn't there? If you're sick, you do what you can to get to the doctor. If you're cold, you do what you can to get wrapped up and to get warmed up. If you're hungry, you do what you can to get something to eat. These people knew that they had a physical need, so they were following one who they thought could fill up what their physical need was. Verse 2 says that they followed him. Why? It says that they followed him because they saw the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. They saw what Jesus could do, so they were following him for that. But see, the problem with the people in the crowd was they only understood that they were in physical need. They didn't understand what their real need was, did they? They didn't understand that their real need was a spiritual need. They were so hung up on their physical needs that they didn't even notice what their real need was. Now, how do I know that? Two reasons. It's evident when Jesus starts talking to them later on in the chapter and then later on after that. But it's also evident in the way that verse 2 says that they followed Jesus. Why did they follow Him? They followed Him because they saw His miracles. They followed Him because they saw that He could do some really cool stuff. They knew that they had physical needs and they were looking for something to fix those physical needs. They were looking for something for themselves. They were looking for what they could get out of it. They might have been following Jesus, but you can rest assured that as they were following Jesus, they were thinking and looking at themselves the whole time. Jesus, I'm following you because of what you can do for me. Jesus, I'm following you for what I can get out of it. Let me ask you, why are you following Jesus? Well, that was the crowd. The crowd was the first character. Let's look at the second character. The second character involved was Philip. Can't you just picture Jesus and the disciples sitting there on this hillside? I, I love to get away. <laughs> I, I love to get away. I, I'm around people all the time. There are sometimes I just love to go up on a hillside and just hang out with all of my friends, me, myself, and I. <laughs> I just love to get away. And can't you just imagine, that? just picture the disciples. They've been around all these crowds and all of this stuff, people pulling at them and all of that, and they just get up on this hillside. they got the cool breeze coming off of the Sea of Galilee at their back. And it's peaceful and quiet for a few minutes. And then they look down the hill, and what do they see? Here come all these people coming up the hill. I can picture Jesus looking, up, looking over at Philip and then just glancing down the hill and saying, Well, that was fun while it lasted. Here they come, Philip. And then look over at Philip and say, 
hey, Philip, what are we going to do? Now, did Jesus ask that question because he didn't really know what to do? Of course not. Of course not. You look at the places throughout the Bible where God asks men, asks people questions. <laughs> it's not because God doesn't know what He's... God's not looking for the answer. <laughs> the reason that He asked Philip that question was in order to test him. That's what it says in verse 6, doesn't it? Verse 6 says, He asked this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. It wasn't a mystery to Jesus what he was going to do. He knew what he was going to do, but he looked over to Philip and he said, Hey, Philip, what are we going to do? <laughs> and what did Philip do? Now, the right answer, it's easy to look back and say what the right answer would have been. The right answer for Philip would have been to say, I don't know, Jesus, you're God. Tell me, what are we going to do? But Philip didn't do that, did he? What did Philip do instead? I, I can picture Philip now. You've got to excuse a little bit of, I call it sanctified imagination. We're going to apply a little sanctified imagination to this. You know, people have different personalities, right? I can picture Philip as having the personality of an engineer or an accountant or something like that. Because the first thing that he did was when he looks down and he sees the crowd coming and he knows that they're hungry, the first thing he does is pull out a spreadsheet in his brain. And he says, okay, there's all of these people coming, and there's all of this, and this how, how much the food will cost, and this, it, we don't have nearly enough money to feed all of these people. The first thing that he did was engage his brain, engage his linear, logical, mathematical brain. Philip answered him in verse 7, he said, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to have a little. 200 denarii in those days, if you had a really good job, you could pull in 200 denarii in about eight months. So he was saying eight months wages wouldn't be enough to feed this crowd. I don't know what caused Philip to come up with that number. Maybe that's how much money they had in their till. Whatever reason, that's the number that he chose. And the calculator in his brain, the whole spreadsheet thing in his brain that he pulled out, all he could come up with was, Jesus, we don't have enough to feed these people. Even if we completely drain the account, we don't have enough to even give these people just a crumb, just a scrap of food. Now, he was being practical, wasn't he? He engaged his practical brain. He saw the number of people. He saw the amount of money. He was a realist. He knew what could be bought with that amount of money. And he came to the, to the logical conclusion. He said, Jesus, whatever you want to do, we can't do it. We just can't do it. It's impossible. Jesus, I know that you might be interested in feeding these people, but I'm telling you that whatever you want to do, it can't be done. What do you do when Jesus presents you with a situation that you think is impossible? When Jesus clearly shows you something that needs to be done, but it looks like it's impossible, what do you do? Well, that was Philip. There's another character. That third character was Andrew. You've got to love Andrew. Anybody in here have, a, have a, an older brother? Anybody have an older brother? Is anybody awake? Nobody in here has an older brother? Anybody have an older brother? Well, if you've, had a, if you've had an older brother that might have been more popular or might have been more famous or might have been more well-known than you, then you can understand what it was like to be Andrew. 
Everywhere in Scripture that Andrew was mentioned, he's always mentioned as Peter's brother. So anytime, you can just picture, anytime that Andrew would walk into a crowd or, or somebody would be talking about Andrew, they'd say, oh, you know Andrew? And they'd be like, who? 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 Oh, Peter's brother. Oh, Peter's brother. We, we know Andrew. That's Andrew. That's the way that he was. <laughs> he was Peter's little brother everywhere in Scripture. But there's another way in Scripture that Andrew is always identified. Every time that Andrew is mentioned in Scripture, he's doing the same thing. You know what that is? He's bringing somebody to Jesus. Everywhere you find Andrew in Scripture, he's always bringing somebody to Jesus. That's what he did here. He brought this little boy to Jesus. Verse 8, the first part of verse 9 says, One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, there, yeah, Simon, Andrew who? Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. Now here's one of those things where we need to get the Sunday school picture out of our mind. Because I can still picture the flip chart that had, that had Andrew there with the little boy, just like the little boy was just hanging around there. Remember the size of the crowd? Jesus said, I, we, we want to feed this crowd. So Andrew immediately went out and went through the crowd trying to find somebody who had food. And apparently he searched a long way through that crowd before he came up with anybody with anything. And all that he could come up with, with this little boy, with his little lunch pail of food. He heads off into a crowd that's a third of the size of Mercer County, and all he can come back with is this boy with his lunch pail. Hey, Jesus, I brought you somebody who's got some food. Wouldn't it be nice if he left it there? But he had to finish verse 9, didn't he? But what are they for so many? Andrew went pursuing, went actively looking for what Jesus was wanting. He went actively looking and then he brought him something. And instead of saying, Jesus here, he said, Jesus here, but that ain't enough. Andrew was sensitive to what Jesus wanted. He was a man of action. He was tenacious in his search. Jesus said food, and he went and found food. He brought every, found everything he could and laid it at the feet of Jesus, and then he said it's not enough. It's just not enough. It's not going to work. Jesus, if we just had more food, then we could do what you're asking us to do. If we just had more, then we could really do something. Well, all we got is this little bit, so it's not going to do much good. That was Andrew. And don't forget about the little boy. The fourth character involved was the little boy. Now, if I was to ask you, tell me everything that you know about the little boy. Do you know his name? Do you know where he's from? Do you know who his parents were? Don't know anything, do we? All we know is he was a little boy whose mama cared enough about him to pack a lunch pail as he went out on a trip. That's all we know. The original word that's translated boy indicates that it was a young boy. He was a little fella. He was a little fella with a little fella's lunch. 
Now don't get the wrong impression by the loaves and fish. Once again, the Sunday school picture is great, but you need to pull that out of your mind a little bit. This wasn't five loaves of Wonder Bread that he had with him. It was five barley cakes. They're probably about the size of biscuits. The fish was probably, just knowing the area and knowing the culture, it was probably more like sardines, salt-cured sardines. Now, not like the little little things they call sardines that they put in cans on our shelves. <laughs> I, I've been in the Mediterranean, and I've, I've been through that area. The, their sardines are about that long, so they're at least a little bit bigger than our version of sardines, but they were probably salt-cured. It was those those kinds of things. And what they would typically do was the poor folks would take these barley cake biscuits and they would take pieces off of that sardine. It was just kind of mushy, kind of just not real appetizing. And they would take a piece of that and they'd spread it on the biscuit just for flavor. So that was what this little boy had. He had five biscuits and some spread to put on it. The fact that the biscuits were made out of barley tells us that it wasn't rich people's food. Barley was the grain for poor folks. Because it was a little boy and because there were five biscuits, it means that his mama packed his lunch to last not just that day, but for several days. So she expected him to be gone for a little while. Now, I don't know if you've ever been poor enough that you didn't know where your next meal was coming from. But if you have, you know that it was not a casual thing for that little boy to give up four or five days worth of food. But he did. He's a little boy. He's probably poor as dirt. And he was so insignificant that Scripture doesn't even record his name. Andrew brought the boy to Jesus, but Andrew didn't even introduce the boy. <laughs> didn't even say, Jesus, here's... He didn't even introduce him by name. That was the boy. He was a child. He was a poor child. He was an insignificant poor child. He had a few biscuits, a couple of sardines. But what did he do with them? He gave them to Jesus. All he had, gave them to Jesus. He wasn't like the crowds. He wasn't looking for something to get out of it, was he? He wasn't like Philip. He wasn't calculating all of this stuff and all the ways that it wasn't going to work. He wasn't even like the one who brought him to Jesus. He wasn't like Andrew. He wasn't looking for anything else. No. He just knew what he had. And he gave it to Jesus. And all he was looking for Jesus to do was what Jesus said he was going to do. Notice what Jesus did. Quickly, Jesus did four things. The first thing that Jesus did was He put the people, the crowd, this massive crowd, He put them in a position of expectation. Verse 10 says that Jesus told the disciples to make the people do what? To make them sit down. The word in the original literally means recline. Just just kind of lay down. That was the way they ate. That was their culture of the day. They, Jesus basically told them, pull up a chair, pull up the table and get ready to eat. In other words, get your fork and spoon ready. Get your napkin tucked in because we're fixing to eat some food. Uh, Jesus, have you noticed? There isn't any food. Doesn't matter. 
Jesus put them in a position to expect that it was coming. Then in verse 11, what did Jesus do? After putting the people in a position of expectation, He gave thanks for provision that wasn't there. He gave thanks. He blessed, blessed the food when there wasn't any food there. And then it was only after that, only after putting them in a position of expectation and praying over food that wasn't there, it was only after that that Jesus blessed the unbelieving crowd with food. Verse 11 says He gave them as much as they wanted. It's like me coming out of Ryan's. That's how satisfied, that's how fat and full they were. They ate till they were absolutely stuffed. You know what else Jesus did? The last thing that Jesus did was He grew the faith of the believers. And we're going to talk a little bit more about growing faith how He grows the faith of His believers. We're going to talk more about that tonight. But the last thing that He did here in this event was He grew the faith of the believers. Look what Jesus did with His disciples. He gave each of them a basket of bread to feed their faith. Now, it wasn't a bread basket like you put on your table at dinner time. No, these were baskets that probably there were baskets along the, the Sea of Galilee. The only thing that that area was known for was fishing. And what the fishermen would do, they would put these baskets all along the, all along the shore just to kind of dry out so when the fishermen came in, they could, they could take a basket and load it up with fish to carry into the market. So these were large baskets. <laughs> Jesus said, get some of the baskets off the shore and go pick up the scraps. So each of the disciples gathered up probably a couple of bushels of bread to take with them, to feed on for the next few days. Did you know that the same Jesus who did that is the same Jesus that is walking in the midst of Burke Memorial Baptist Church this morning? Did you know that? First three chapters, or first chapter of Revelation makes it very clear that Jesus walks in the midst of His local churches. The same Jesus that did this miracle is walking in our midst this morning. He's the same Jesus that that Scripture tells us is the head of the body, the head of the church. That same Jesus is in this church today. Do you believe that? Let me ask you this. If that same Jesus is here this morning, then who are you here this morning? Are you the crowd? Have you just come into this place this morning because you're looking for what you can get out of it? Are you looking? Are you here just looking to have your needs met this morning? Maybe you're not like the crowd. Maybe you're more like Philip here this morning. You know what Jesus is asking you to do. He's made it clear what He's asking you to do or what He's asking this church to do. You know that Jesus is asking Burke Memorial Baptist Church to reach your Jerusalem, your Judea, your Samaria, and the ends of the earth. He's made it very clear in Acts 1-8 that that's what He's calling you to do. But you look around and you say, there's just no way. Are you like Philip this morning? 
And we we got a hard time paying our bills. We got a hard time doing this. We got a hard time doing that. Much less reaching this area for Christ. We just don't have enough. Maybe you're not like Philip. Maybe you're like Andrew this morning. Maybe you're like Andrew. You've worked hard and you've done the things that you thought you were supposed to do and you've gone out and you've searched and you've worked and you've, and you've run and you've done and you've done all of these things. But now that you've laid out all that you have in front of Jesus, you're thinking that Jesus needs more stuff to accomplish His will. You know, we could be a really good church if we just had... And then you fill in the blank. Is that you this morning? You might have walked in here this morning like any one of those, like the crowd, like Philip, like Andrew. But here's what I'm asking you now. I'm asking you, no matter how you walked in here, I'm asking you to walk out of here like that little boy. Walk out of here like that little boy. You don't have to be anybody. (laughs) You don't have to have anything. I'm asking you to turn whatever you have over to Jesus. It's not about your offering. It's not about any of that kind of stuff. This is about your life. This is about your gifts. This is about Jesus being Lord of every area of your life. Maybe you need to publicly profess Jesus as your Lord and Savior this morning. That's where it has to start. But it certainly doesn't end with that. For those of you who have already come to Jesus as your Lord and Master and Savior, maybe you need to take whatever you have, whether it's time, treasure, gifts, whatever, and lay it at the feet of Jesus. And when you do, you're going to see Him do something unimaginable with it. Something that will absolutely blow your mind. You remember what Jesus did back in verse 5 when He saw the crowds coming? Way back up at the beginning of the story. He looked over at Philip and basically said, Philip, you know what needs to be done. What are you going to do about it? Well, I believe that since Jesus is in our midst, I believe He's doing the same thing this morning. I I believe He's looking at each one of us and He's saying, you know what needs to be done. What are you going to do about it? Let's pray. Father, I thank You that You have blessed us with every imaginable gift. You've blessed us. you blessed this church. you blessed the churches of this area with everything that, is, that could be needed to reach this area for Christ to make an impact in this area that would change lives and that would change hearts. Father, I thank You that You have given us everything necessary to do that. Father, now You're asking us, what are You going to do about it? So Father, I would ask that Your Spirit would move in this place this morning. And first, if there's one in this house who's not trusted You as Lord and Master and Savior, that today would be the day of their salvation. But Father, for those who have trusted Christ as Lord and Master and Savior, Father, I would, I would ask that today that You would give them a fresh 
desire to lay everything at Your feet. Father, that You would take away the the doubts and the concerns of it's not enough or it won't work, that You take away all those things. And that, Father, today, that we would all leave this place like that little boy. Father, this time of invitation is Yours. Father, You do with it what You will. In Jesus' name, Amen. I thank You for Your attention uh, this morning. Uh, come on back tonight. I, you know, I don't normally like to announce it ahead of time because anytime I say I'm preaching, folks just don't want to show up. But uh, uh, we'll be back tonight and we'll uh, continue on a little bit farther in that same chapter. And we'll look at another very familiar story. So you can go on and read through that chapter if you want to this afternoon and be prepared to come back this evening. And we'll, uh, we'll dig into God's Word and we'll find how, how Jesus intends to grow the faith of those who've trusted Him. Don't we all need our faith to grow? You remember the one that came to Jesus and he said, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. So we, we want Jesus to help our unbelief. So come on back and, and we'll work through that. Also going to be here Wednesday. Wednesday we're going to go through a, um, it's a discipleship tool. It's something that, that I think that if we as Christians and we in our churches can start to do, it's so simple and it's so easy, but I think that if we can use this tool, would start using this tool, that it would absolutely turn this area upside down for Christ. So there's the potential um, that's just unimaginable for that. So that's, that's what's called a tease. So make sure and come on back tonight and come back Wednesday night and we'll look through those things. I appreciate you, uh, appreciate your attention this morning. And I always love being here with you folks. Brother Ernie, would you close in prayer?